0: Welcome to the Aquest podcast, conversations about regs, funds and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler.
1: Hello, welcome to this very special ETF episode of the Aquest podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by my regular co-host, Shannon Eastman. Shannon is a human behavioral specialist, communications expert, management consultant, working in the financial services industry. You can find out more about Shannon over at www.shannoneastman.com. Shannon obviously comes with a very different perspective on the world, so it's great to have her involved in the podcasts. Our guest for this episode is Ryan Sullivan, who is the head of U.S. ETF services in Brown Brothers, Harry Mann. Ryan is a great guy. He's based in Massachusetts in the States. And for this podcast, not only do we get to talk about ETFs and some of the ins and outs from a technical perspective about the Fed's decision to buy units of U.S. bond ETFs, we talk about what we've seen and how we've seen ETFs perform and behave during stress market conditions that we have at the moment. We look at semi-transparent ETFs and how they're set up as some of them have been recently approved in the US. But we also talk about life under lockdown from the US and from the Irish perspective. And we look into the future, some thoughts about future developments in the ETF world, but also what we can learn from the crisis and how businesses are adapting, and what they're taking from the current experience and building into how they plan to run their businesses into the future. So sit back, relax, enjoy this conversation with Ryan Sullivan of BBH. Thanks, guys, for joining
2: us. Danny, great to be here. Good to be speaking with you guys.
1: Well, welcome from lockdown land. (laughs) Ryan, I don't know what it's like, and I know you're in Massachusetts. Here in Dublin, we're, I don't know, week five into it, maybe?
0: Week five, Um, Yeah.
1: Please Does it feel like five points. weeks, Shannon?
0: It actually feels like month three, but it's only the fifth week. <laughs> We've got the guards doing running checkpoints in D6, sirens chasing us out of parks. There's a lot happening. There's a lot happening in little South Dublin. What's going on over there, Ryan?
2: Uh, I would say things are blurring together. Uh, I mean, today's Friday. We're in week six here in Massachusetts, at least, for our kind of lockdown uh and social distancing Uh, and i would say you know sometimes the weekends roll around and you wonder if it's saturday or if it's wednesday (laughs) everything kind of feels a little bit the same
0: or when Uh, the friday (laughs) of april may june
2: yeah (laughs) exactly it looks like we're going to be doing this for the foreseeable future just this week the governor here in massachusetts canceled the school year so we will be kind of homeschooling or at least virtually for the rest of the year And it doesn't look like summer camps will be kicking off for the kiddos anytime soon. So this is our new normal, so to speak. And we'll be doing this for a bit longer.
0: How many kids have you got, Ryan? Ryan?
2: I've got two boys. Declan is six and he's in kindergarten here. And Colin, we just actually celebrated his birthday. So it was our first quarantine birthday. Uh-huh. This week, I he just turned her. four. So all hands on deck here in terms of homeschooling. My spell works as well. So we're trying to, you know, plow ahead and get some work done during the day. But we're, we're effectively doing two jobs here with kind of backstopping the teachers a little bit and trying to do our day jobs.
1: What's the extent of the lockdown there, Ryan? Like here it is. Basically, everybody's working from home. Essential services like supermarkets, filling petrol, gas stations are Mm -hmm. open. But everything else is even the pubs are shut, Ryan. Do you know what I mean? We are taking <laughs>
0: this seriously. Two days before St. Patrick's Day, come on!
2: That was a big deal here because I think there was some concern. I mean, St. Patrick's Day, as you, as I'm sure you've heard, is somewhat popular in the Boston area as well, <laughs> and there were was some thought that people might kind of crowd in the pubs because it's also a state holiday, evacuation day here. And so a lot of folks are off work around those times in in normal circumstances, but they were able to. I think with the with the lockdown order, they, they did close all of uh, the bars and the restaurants, who were kind of in similar footing to you guys, it sounds like. I mean, obviously, the schools are canceled. The businesses are a work-from-home environment. My entire firm, Brown Brothers Harriman, we we are all work-from-home at this point, kind of across the U.S., across the globe. But here, specifically, it's, you know, essential services are still open. The gas stations are open, the grocery stores. We've been muddling through it for the last couple weeks. I don't think we're, we're expecting any subsequent changes to, to what's in place now, but it's just going to be, you know, probably an extension of this environment we're in.
1: Yeah, my biggest concern, beyond obviously the the serious concerns of the human situation, is when are the barbers going to reopen? Because I keep having to sit further and further away from my my webcam so I can get my all of my all of my ginger afro in.
2: the The personal hygiene front is interesting. I just had my wife cut my hair for for the first Ooh. time. We've been married for ten years and dated for a few years before that, so she gave me a fade last week. I did my two boys and I haven't done that since they were little. So you know, all in all we were presentable. I've got a, a sweet glorious new beard going which which otherwise I'm usually pretty clean shaven so it's a, it's an opportunity to to try some new styles. I probably a benefit maybe of the environment we're in if you look for silver linings at least.
1: Well, I I'm reconciling myself with one of my one of my sporting heroes unfortunately passed away this week. He was in his 70s. He was a footballer from team in England. And so I've been watching a lot of sort of footage from the late 60s, early 70s. And I think they have the hairstyle that uh, we're going for here, which is pretty much just unkempt, massive locks and let the hair grow wild. I'm not saying that it's just out of necessity. I'm trying to frame it as being a choice. I'm going for the Norman Hunter 1972.
2: (laughs) You have a certain goal in mind.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's all about perspective, isn't it, Shannon?
2: Absolutely.
0: My perspective is to get through the eight bottles of shampoo that I already have in my bathroom without going and buying more. I'm just using everything that's, you know, all the surplus that we've collected before COVID-19, multivitamins. I'm not buying any more until the ones that are in my house have been totally used. So, I have less pain on the hair front, except my fringe, I can barely see now. So I'm definitely going to have to get that trimmed myself. But Danny, I was thinking the ginger afro suits you. You I like it? Have to make it look good.
1: Well, you know, I realized the world's gone mental. The other night we had done our shop and my wife is there wiping down the pack of dead old sanitary wipes, the pack. So I, I just think <laughs> it's too much. But I might keep the look. I might keep the look when we get out the other side of this.
0: You never know. Do it. And then raise some money for charity when it comes time to cutting it all off.
1: Maybe. That's an idea. We're going to go too tight, though. I had a friend who had long hair and he did one of these charity shaves and it never grew back.
2: <laughs> That's the risk, right? You know, once you grow it long there, you, you got to make sure you kind of keep it up there for appearances. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anyway, on to more serious and industry related matters, Ryan.
2: <laughs>
0: yes. ETFs.
1: ETFs, the head of ETF, US ETF services at BBH. And as you know, Ryan, Ireland is the, or the central bank here is the regulator for the second largest international ETF industry. So there's more ETFs in Ireland than the rest of Europe combined. So when you mention the words ETF, generally in Dublin and Ireland, people in the industry, their ears prick up a little bit. And as we go through the stresses in the market at the moment, obviously plenty to chat about on the ETF front. So handsome, delighted to have you here so I can kind of pick your brains and get some insights from your perspective. But I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you about was the decision by the US Fed to buy US bond ETF shares. What's the background to that? Do you know, Ryan?
2: Yeah, I think a couple things kind of came into the picture here with the Fed action. So, Danny, you kind of alluded to no shortage of topics to kind of talk about here as we as we think about the ETF market, and certainly, you know, from my perch here, uh, looking. A bit more closely at the U.S. market in particular, you know, the notion of volatility and its impact, the rise in volatility, you know, throughout March, uh, as we we were talking about kind of the the COVID-19 crisis here, the increased uh, substantial increases that we've seen in ETF trading, both in the U.S., in Europe and in Asia, that has put a lot of eyes on the product. And Mm -hmm. I think even more so than usual, one particular element that I think has kind of come through in this period of heightened volatility, we saw this element of more persistent premiums and discounts, discounts specifically in fixed income ETFs. And that, I think, was a sign to the Fed that while they were looking to backstop and buttress sort of the bond market, broadly speaking, they identified ETFs for really the first time in, kind of in Fed policy, effectively that buying ETFs and undertaking this action, buying both corporate bonds, and now they've extended that into the high yield ETF market as well. By buying these ETFs, that would have an effect of calming some of the fixed income capital markets. So I think, you know, this is really unprecedented territory for us in terms of the perspective here with the Fed action. Even in the exceptional uh, events that they undertook back during the financial crisis, they didn't buy ETFs. And now for the first time, they're saying they're going to buy uh, investment-grade corporates as well as high-yield ETFs. And again, really to drive and then sort of calm that fixed income market more broadly, or as part of an effort to do that more broadly.
1: So that's interesting. So their action is partly, I guess, to be the buyer of bonds and provide some liquidity for issuers and for people looking to sell positions. Mm -hmm. But they were also mindful of... The US ETF market and the discounts, as you were saying, that they were starting to see, particularly in bond ETFs.
2: Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, usually, you know, there are periods where all ETFs may trade at a a premium or discount. And what we mean when we say that is. The ETF's NAV um, versus its market price that it trades at in the exchange, that market price can either be above the NAV, hence a premium, or it can be below the NAV, hence a discount. And what we saw in March especially was that those discounts in the fixed income market were much more persistent than we would otherwise expect for ETFs basically what we would expect to see is that the funds authorize participants these investment banks or in trading desks that have the right to create or redeem shares directly with the ETF Usually those premiums and discounts present an arbitrage opportunity for those firms and they can take action to increase or decrease the supply of the ETF shares in the secondary market and close those premiums and discounts so that the secondary market price tracks much more closely than the fund's NAV. We didn't see them actually take those arb trades because I think effectively there was concerns about the riskiness of the broader bond market, looking at the fund's underlying holdings, the individual bonds. The price points might have been stale, there might have been thin or no trading going on. So those discounts, the ETF level were just much more persistent and stayed sort of on the tape on the screen, if you will, much longer than we would otherwise see. So now you've got the Fed saying, okay, it's not so much an ETF issue as it is a underlying kind of bond market issue, just given how thinly some of the individual bonds trade, we need to take action. And now we're essentially signaling to the market the importance that ETFs have uh, to the broader financial market at large. And I think that was part of their consideration where they stepped forward and said, we're going to start buying ETFs as a way to to lessen the burden right now on the the market infrastructure.
1: So as the, the gap grew between the NAV and the exchange price, was it that the NAV, I guess, with the assets, the underlyings being, you know, thinly traded and not tons of liquidity there. They must have been harder to value. So was the issue that the, as the funds tried to value the underlying securities, that they were having difficulty doing that? And so it took a while for the underlyings and for the NAVs to catch up with the exchange prices. So were the exchange prices right or did the, did the NAV tend to be at the right price?
2: You know, I think we saw the reliance of our perch here as a custodian and administrator of the ETFs. You know, we're relying much like other firms of our capability where they sit in the market. We're all relying on sort of data vendors to provide prices on a daily basis. so We can support the calculation of the net asset value of the NAV. So I think in this case, what we saw was that ETFs were almost used, their market price was almost used as a price discovery tool, if you will, so that market makers can look at the ETF. These are transparent, so the market makers can understand what the ETF holds, what the underlying bond positions would be. And they can say, okay, I know these individual bonds are trading thinly, the prices are stale, but I can say when we package these up into a commingled product, the ETF shares that are sort of the almost become a proxy for the the underlying issues. So I think that desire, the notion that the ETF itself can be used, the ETF shares uh, can be used as that price discovery tool. I think that bore out here so that the market makers at large, and this is certainly not a US phenomenon. This was going on sort of in, in all the ETF domiciles, but the market makers were able to use the ETF shares to kind of signal where they felt the value of the underlying bonds was. So in this case, they're trading intraday, they can use those signals to price accordingly, whereas the NAV obviously is kind of a end of day snapshot. So I think in this case, those market makers were were kind of showing where they felt the value of the market was at any given point during the day.
1: So that's very interesting. So it was the exchange traded price of the shares that kind of reflected, if you like, the true value. And the NAV caught up to it, rather than the exchange price catching up to the NAV.
2: I think that's that's kind of a fair description there. And you know, obviously, we're talking about the Fed action. I mean, you can see. So the Fed hasn't actually undertaken any action yet. They've signaled their intention. They've put some uh, high-level framework out there around the types of products they would support and how much of these they they could invest in. So, you know, for example, they've set a cap of about 20% of outstanding shares of these ETFs. They can't go above that. So this likely means they will hold some of the largest fixed income ETFs in terms of assets under management, as well as the ones that are most liquid, probably have the highest amount of shares outstanding or shares, shares available in the market. But even them just making the signal and kind of stating their intention, we've seen basically going from sort of a net outflow environment and fixed income since the Fed's announcement on March 23rd, we've seen 5 5.7 billion in net flows going into investment grade ETFs here. So it's, you know, even their action here, and like I said, kind of stating their intent was enough to kind of calm markets and bring investors back into these products. So it's certainly a powerful element and signal from the central bank here in terms of the importance of ETFs and really kind of bringing them into the mainstream, I think.
1: Right, guys. It reminds me of during the last crisis here in Europe, you had Mario Draghi and the ECB saying, we'll do whatever it takes to support the euro. And that was kind mm-hmm. of a turning point. So here you have the Fed saying, not whatever it takes, but our intention is to purchase. And even before they've had to purchase or, or purchased in practice, that's turned things around. And, and you're seeing, I guess you're seeing that discount level retreat and, and the NAV and the exchange traded price start to get back to where you'd expect them to be. We There's We have. Of-
2: yeah, no, I think I think that's spot on. I mean, some of these uh, discounts were were north of twenty, thirty percent for wow. for, some, uh, for individual tickers, depending on the fund strategy, whether it was investment grade or high yield. So the, these were, you know, very large in terms of again, kind of a normal environment where you'd expect them to see, and they they were more persistent. They lasted for days before you know, kind of returning to normal. But since that Fed action, I did those discounts have really collapsed. Everything's gone back and, and trading much much tighter to NAV. I still think there's some pockets where it's probably wider than it would be otherwise, you know, if we weren't sort of in this pandemic. But certainly, you know, I think we're all expecting market fluctuations with this new normal we're in. So, you know, ETFs are not immune from any kind of movement in the market. I think there's been a lot of debate around, you know, have ETFs been tested over the years? I think this is certainly another major test for the ETF market at large, and certainly seem to be passing thus far, all things considered.
1: Yeah, because yes, one of the The simple ways I think about ETFs versus mutual funds is if typically every strategy or every index tracker that you see in an ETF, I'm sure you can get a mutual fund version of it. So I can track the S&P 500 through an ETF or a mutual fund. And the advantage of going into ETF is obviously the tradability versus a mutual fund. But in a mutual fund, I'm getting NAV. In an ETF, I'm getting the exchange price, which might be a little bit less if if I'm selling. And so the kind of the trade off for the tradability is the fact that you you may be getting a little bit less than nav and where that gap widens you get a i suppose if i'm an investor i question is it worth the tradability would i be better off just in the mutual fund getting nav mm-hmm. plus or minus duties and charges versus getting my exchange traded price and, and as those discounts and those prices start to to get further and further apart as an investor, I've got to think I'd rather be in a mutual fund. But that is kind of assumes that NAV is the right price, or that sure. if I'm thinking NAV is 100 and the exchange price is 90, when I put in my redemption request and they calculate NAV, it sounds like I'm finding that NAV is actually closer to 90
2: exactly yeah and i mean i think that the the notion there that you know in certain times maybe the nav is seen as is a little bit more certainty from Mm -hmm. investors and this idea which kind of captured here you know in terms of investors understanding you know the premium discount nature and what they're buying at not only at the exchange price but also you know the liquidity that they're effectively paying in the form of paying for in the form of spreads and that's something you know one thing we do each year for our etf clients is we put together a, a global ETF survey. So this is the eighth year we did it. It was published in January. And one of the things we ask, we go out to investors and we ask them about how they're you know, viewing the ETF market, which products, asset classes do they wanna see more of? And one thing we ask about is, what are their selection criteria when they're looking to bring a new ETF into their portfolio? The interesting thing is, you know, we, we go to investors in the US, we go to investors in Europe, and we go to investors in, in greater China and ask pretty much the same questions. The greater China market was the only one where spreads and liquidity rated in the top three of investors when they're selecting a new ETF. In the US, spreads were number four. So outside the top three, liquidity was further down. And in Europe, it was flipped where liquidity was in the top three, but spreads were further down. You know, so it's interesting, we think about, you know, greater China, for example, with the ETF market that is quickly growing, but maybe less mature than the US or what we see in Europe. But those investors seem to be a little bit more tuned to some of these nuances when trading ETFs over the exchange. And we know that's a key area of focus for our clients when they're going out to investors and trying to educate them. And I think as we come out the back end of this pandemic, whenever that may be, but that will continue to be, I think, a key area education component for ETF issuers themselves in terms of educating investors around best trading policies, appropriate execution, and how to think about spreads and liquidity more broadly.
1: Yeah, I guess if you were in, let's say, Europe or the states you had assumed that liquidity wasn't an issue or spreads would always be tight. Yeah. And now when you see that that had been the case, but isn't guaranteed. Maybe it's something then that brings that when you do your survey in 2021, you're going to see those much higher up to the much higher up the list.
2: Oh, I think we're getting some great ammunition for questions for, for next <laughs> year here. But yeah, I think so. That's our expectation of something we've talked to a few clients about already that you know we really do think there will be even more focus now on spreads and liquidity more broadly. And if you think about uh, potential areas for regulatory attention, I mean, that was something that was a, a key element in the ETF role here that passed last year in 2019 and is set to go into effect at the end of 2020 when firms need to become compliant with it. But they were calling for far more data on a fund-by-fund basis around trading, premium discount information, spread analysis, certain bands to monitor, added reporting to fund boards. So already a lot of regulatory scrutiny around uh, sort of secondary market liquidity and cost to trade, if you will. And I think that will only continue here as we, we go into the future.
1: Yeah, and in 2017, we had the central bank here issue their discussion paper around ETFs. And mm-hmm. it varies, that's kind of been a precursor to work that's ongoing at an international level in IOSCO. And I guess that paper has probably helped to frame some of where IOSCO might start from. But you're looking at it and saying, well, this is a structure. How would it perform in stress market conditions? Where could it go wrong? I guess APs might walk away. There's nobody mm-hmm. making a market investors have bought in the secondary market and find they're stuck because nobody is going to make a market for them to sell into and it's probably not practical for them to sell directly back to the ETF. How have we seen that play out? Because it seems to me that I know we've talked about the Fed, that piece there on the bond ETFs, but broadly they're performing pretty well operationally at least
2: yeah you know and it's interesting dynamic because I think a lot of the focus and the attention understandably so has really been around what we call the secondary market in the ETF ecosystem and that's really the execution of trading at the market price over the exchange so you know buyers and sellers going to their advisors going to the broker dealers placing trades through these platforms market makers kind of standing in the middle of all of it and there's been a lot of attention there in ways that we've talked about premium and discounts that's really where it the difference between the fund's NAV and its market price in the secondary market. Operationally on the primary market, that's really where we sit at BBH in terms of being a custodian and administrator for the funds. We're supporting the creation and the redemption of the ETF shares directly with the fund. So the shares that are traded in the secondary market have to be created by an authorized participant and moved into the exchange. And I think operationally, when you look at that, even in this a sort of unprecedented environment with banks like BBH working from home, our clients are working from home, authorized participants, market makers, the exchanges are working from home with that, you know, massive change in just the day to day environment the execution and the operations have continued in almost a BAU fashion. We've certainly seen the premiums and discounts. We've seen, you know, higher spreads. It's become more costly to trade. Investors have to pay for their liquidity. But when they want to execute a trade, they can get out. We haven't seen funds, you know, massive halts on creation and redemption orders. We've certainly seen a spike in that in the creation redemption volume. We've seen a lot more cash based orders versus in-kind trading. But that's still continued. And operationally, the settlements have been occurring. We really, just haven't encountered any massive breaks in the system given what's very new work environment for just about everybody involved in the products.
1: So you haven't seen fund suspensions, haven't seen investors get nervous about it as a structure, as an offering and look to run away?
2: Well, I can't speak for for the investment community. I mean, I think there's certainly some nervousness out there. You know, I think that we talked about those persistent discounts, for example. I mean, that was something that got a lot of attention. But we haven't seen massive sell-offs and investors kind of selling their ETF positions and and staying on the sidelines or moving to other product sets. You know, I think if you look at the flows... Over this period, so we've certainly saw some dips in fixed income, which was down around 30 billion or so globally in March. But for the quarter, it still leaked out 9 billion in net flows. I mean, then equity ETFs in particular, we think more broadly, those were positive for March at just north of 30 billion and up almost to 70 billion for the entire quarter or year to date. And that actually outpaces last year's Q1 efforts, which was far more of a a normal environment, at least compared to what we're in today. So I don't think, you know, with these flows we're seeing, you know, overall ETFs were positive globally in March and for the quarter across all asset classes. So when you think of that, I mean, investors do seem to be using ETFs even to a greater extent when these periods of volatility happen. And I think ultimately that's indicative of the strength of the product, the fact that they can trade and they can make their trades when they need to. And broad broadly speaking, the, the operational model that these ETFs employ is held up under periods of market stress.
1: Yeah, and I guess if you look at this from a securities regulator's perspective, the timing of the crisis is interesting because they, as I said here, there was a discussion paper 2017, IOSCO had already started to look at ETFs. And when you're a securities regulator and you're, you're thinking about these things, no more than anything else that you do, you think about what could go wrong, what are the mm-hmm. risks. And now we're in an environment where it's like a live test case. So you're actually seeing yes. this is what happens and how well has the structure stood up and where have there been stresses and, and where has it performed? as we would like and and where could it be better so i'm sure you'll see securities regulators and industry and providers use this as an opportunity hopefully at some point you sit down and say well what did we learn Mm -hmm. and how do we make it better and i do think the piece about the discounts and the obviously the action by the fed had an impact but i'm sure you look at securities regulators will look at that and see what have we learned and is there something we need to do or or not Mm-hmm. To make this structure even more safe the next time around, but broadly positive, I think is a is a fair assessment because we're we're still standing.
2: Exactly. Exactly. We're still standing. We've seen spreads tighten back up. We've seen premium discounts, you know, return to, you know, tighter bands, at least around NAV. So, I mean, still standing is is apt. And I think, you know, even forecasting and then fully agree that there's no time like monitoring what's going on now to think about how do we further refine and improve the product. I think there's some effort already underway. You know, uh, one example here, you know, close to home for me was the exchanges here in the U.S. You've got the New York Stock Exchange, SIBO, and NASDAQ is kind of the big three supporting ETF listings. But there's still some daylight between them and their rule sets. And the NASDAQ just announced some changes it's making to its circuit breaker. So during March, we saw trading halts happen just given the volatility. These were efforts the exchanges had made following some of the flash crashes and the financial crisis to to kind of suspend trading and then resume trading in an orderly fashion, including ETFs. And NASDAQ had some different policies that as these uh, limit up, limit down circuit breakers took, took effect in March, Their prices were a little bit wider and they saw bigger jumps than the other exchanges did when they resumed trading. So they've undertaken some rule changes to actually make that more uniform with the other exchanges, improve that capital market structure. So I think we're going to see more of that as we go through the summer, as we go into the fall to your point about, you know, slight refinements and how do we further buttress and improve kind of the product offering here.
1: And on that front then, obviously here one of the developments, the product developments we've been anticipating for a while is a semi-transparent or some form of ETF that isn't the full level of transparency, full portfolio to everybody on a daily basis. And you guys being the biggest ETF market, we, we kind of look your direction to see what developments there are. And obviously there's been quite a shift on that recently. What can you tell us about semi-transparent ETFs? How do they work in practice? How do they achieve simple and transparent, but not fully disclosed portfolios every day?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, here, here we are. It's an exciting time. I, for one, am hopeful we'll come up with a more consistent descriptor for these things. You can hear ants, you know, active, non-transparent ETFs, semi-transparent ETFs, non-transparent, active ETFs. I mean, I, I think we're hopeful one day we'll just call them ETFs and leave it at that. I'll let other people argue about the semantics and the language around it. But it's been a long time coming here. You know, a lot of these in the US, these new offerings of which there are basically five, you have a, a model that was approved and managed or run by a firm called Presidian, which sought approval for a unique way to limit the disclosure of the fund holdings on a daily basis. So you know, if we're talking about the ETF market, broadly speaking, the basket of securities that an AP would deliver to the fund or receive from the fund to, to facilitate the creation redemption order, that is publicly available. It's, it's updated every day. The Presidian model and then this group of other non-transparent structures we kind of collectively refer to as proxy ETFs, all of them are seeking to limit that daily disclosure and adopt more of a fund disclosure policy similar to the mutual fund environment where the holdings wouldn't be published on a daily basis. Rather, they would use more of a monthly or quarterly reporting period to update investors in the market on what the fund actually holds. So the idea here is that this is these adoption, the the SEC approval of these various structures was really seen as, as a benefit for active managers who didn't see the ETF wrapper as viable because the public, or the daily update and public disclosure of its holdings, would kind of tip the market to their trading strategy, their unique IP that kind of makes them who they are and defines, you know, how they implement their investment strategy. So this should open up a door, you know, with these five new structures that the SEC just just approved last year and bring in a whole new set of active managers into the ETF market.
1: And how do how do market makers manage this situation? So if they don't know what's in the portfolio of the fund, how do they, because typically they don't rely on an INAV or, you know, they'll produce their own INAV because they want to mar- manage the risk. They want to make sure that it's right. And then they're, they're working off that and comparing it to market prices and arbitraging and doing what they do and hedging their risks. How do they manage that if they don't know what's in the portfolio?
2: That is the fundamental question. So <laughs> right we're We're getting right to it. I think that has been where the SEC was focused for years. Some of these structures, you know, have been under review by the SEC for a decade. So when I mentioned this was a long time coming, I mean, there has been a substantial and consistent effort uh, by a number of firms to try to get these products over the goal line, so to speak, for for a long time. And I think the SEC has kind of always come back to, If the holdings aren't visible, how do market makers make an efficient market and keep the spreads tight? And how can an authorized participant effectively ARB, what we talked about earlier about the premium and discounts between the market price and the NAV, how can the AP identify that ARB opportunity if they don't know what the holdings are? Sort of the cornerstone element of how an ETF functions is that ARB trade and ensuring that secondary market price is tracking closely to its NAV. So what these issuers have all come up with, and so I mentioned there were five, so there's the Presidian model, and then there are four proxy products offered by Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, New York Stock Exchange, uh, which has a patent, and a firm called Blue Tractor. And so all of these seek to effectively substitute the daily publication of the fund holdings or the basket that basically exists in the broader ETF market. They're substituting that with other data sets to help these market makers and APs create a model and better understand the fluctuations and the valuation of the fund's basket without necessarily seeing the individual names in the basket on a daily basis. So Presidian, for example, you mentioned the INAV, you're spot on. Market makers and APs have typically built their own models for the INAV and they're getting, that's updating on fractions of a second versus the typical 15 second requirement of an INAV more broadly. But Presidian's model calls for a verified, indicative intraday valuation of VIIB that needs to be calculated in two instances every second. So they there's some thought that that more frequent update of what would actually be the portfolio with a new methodology around an IIV calculation would be an additive data point for market makers to kind of help track fluctuations in the basket intraday when they can't see the basket then in its actual basis. And then on the proxy side, I'll I'll pause here, (laughs) I'm getting a little long-winded, but the proxies actually will publish a daily basket, but it is a proxy. It's not the actual portfolio. And then each one of those models has different overlap requirements between the proxy and the actual. So there will be some Delta, you know, some are setting a floor of it. It has to be at least 90% of the actual portfolio. I think that's the blue tractor example, but they're using that proxy data saying there would be enough information in, in that publicly available, similar portfolio, if you will, for market makers to effectively trade and, and for APs to find our opportunities.
1: Well, the lawyer in me immediately thinks about liability and who bears the liability if proxy portfolio or the what you got a V V uh indicative? Nav, or, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> if that if that proves to be wide wider the mark and presumably the the VIID is produced by a third party who's contracted on that basis and, and I can imagine the fund, I'm sure the fun the lawyers had working on this for 10 years, getting it through the regulator, and then the fun that the lawyers would have if this ever wound up in a, in a court situation where you're trying to decide liability if, if one party feels that the proxy portfolio wasn't close enough to what it should have been.
2: Yeah, I think there's, there's certainly some new wrinkles here in terms of not only the contractual arrangements, the regulatory approvals that fund companies will need to undertake. I mean, I mentioned the ETF rule that passed and is going into effect as we speak. These funds sit outside that rule. So one of the benefits of the rule was for ETFs that qualify, they no longer need exemptive relief. They can file and register with the SEC just like a mutual fund does. But these non-transparent products all now need individual exemptive relief. They have licensing agreements with the entities behind these products. So that's, you know, I think something kind of unique to the, the U S legal landscape, if you will. You know, so there are, there are certainly nuances here. And there are some slight changes, I would say, in the operating model. Some of these introduced a new entity. Presidian, in particular, calls it an authorized participant representative, which would actually enter into a confidentiality agreement with the fund because they would be one of four entities to see the portfolio on a daily basis. In addition to the fund company, the VIIV provider and a firm like Brown Brothers would be striking the dab and, and safekeeping the assets. So that introduces sort of a new entity into the ecosystem. But so far, you know, I would say we had our first launches here in the US market over the last week or so. And operationally, they seem to be doing fine. They're new funds, so they're just kind of getting off the ground. But early indications are at least the operating model is is working and even working the heels of what was a pretty volatile period last month.
1: Yeah, and, and one last question on the technical side before we, we move on. It's always kind of struck me on the active ETF side that like, if I buy an active fund, typically I'm expecting to be in it for a period of time, usually medium to long term, in order to, to really reap the benefits of... The, the genius of the investment manager behind their stock section and their strategy and what have you. And usually these funds are, da- if I was to go into a mutual fund, it's daily dealing. So I'm going to be in it for the medium to long term. I can come out daily anyway. And I've always wondered about whether the the carrot of intraday trading in a product I'm probably going to be in for 10 years anyway, mm-hmm. is that big an attraction to take me and to, to spend, if I'm a provider, 10 years back and forth with the regulator to get this structure agreed. But clearly there is an appetite for active ETFs, notwithstanding that you're probably going to be in them for a long time, you certainly you should be, and, and that they'd probably deal daily anyway. So intraday trading or something you're holding for 10 years doesn't seem like such a huge deal.
2: It, it, that's a fair point. One we've talked about with some of our clients. So, you know, what we typically engage sometimes years out from ETF launches with firms getting into the space. And, and right now, we've got a lot of our mutual fund clients who, uh, as I mentioned, uh, typical active managers who didn't see a way forward in the ETF space because of that daily disclosure requirement, who are now looking at these models, kind of kicking the tires on them. And one thing we've spent some time with them is helping understand, helping them understand what that secondary market volume may be. And, and to your point, you know, most of these. Are buy and hold investments. You know, they're outselling a mutual fund or you know, maybe a managed account and kind of promoting that it should be held over the long term, over multiple market cycles, depending on this particular strategy or asset class. And these ETFs, they're gonna really use those same investment strategies just in a newer wrapper. So, you know, there'd be some benefit, I think, to some folks for the, the tradability and the secondary market nature. But I think overall these will be intended to be buy and hold as, as we've kind of talked about. So that volume secondary market may be lower for these funds just because they're not necessarily intended to be trading tools. But in the U.S., the other big benefit of ETFs is the tax efficiency. And I think that is something that these funds uh, very purposely wanted to ensure they would still be able to tap into one of the key benefits of the ETF market at large, the in-kind nature of an AP delivering securities to a fund or the fund delivering securities to the AP in a redemption that is exempt from taxes by IRS code here. So that drives this incredible amount of tax efficiency and low to no capital gains for ETF investors most years. And these funds would be able to take advantage of that. They will be able to facilitate in-kind activity. And all of them right now, I should mention, are limited to basically asset classes that trade synchronous to the U.S. market. So primarily, you know, for the foreseeable future, and these will be regardless of structure, will all be U.S. equity strategies.
1: Well, Shannon, I know that having tuned in today to the second part of the Equest online ETF tutorials, you are a newly minted ETF expert. What do you make of all this?
0: I am indeed. I am curious to know if there is an ETF ready process of some sort that you can share with us, maybe the BBH way. Ryan. I like
2: that. I I like that, and I <laughs> I promise your listeners I did not I did not say the BBH way, but I do like that. I might I might put that into effect. I know Adrian Willem would love that one. Okay, the, but it, the, actually,
0: it came from Adrian. No, I'm kidding. Okay, I'm kidding.
2: It sounds familiar. It it did sound <laughs> familiar, but that's a great point. I I was kind of mentioning there uh, with Danny's last question. You know, we engage pretty early on with firms especially firms entering the etf market for the first time and i think one thing we've been working with a lot of our mutual fund firms now is, is what we call getting them etf ready so for firm new to the etf space Uh, Not only do you have this primary and secondary market feature, entities called authorized participants and market makers listing your fund on an exchange, you know, a lot of uh, nuances here that don't exactly exist or exist in the same way in the mutual fund environment. So we spend a lot of time with firms helping them kind of navigate these nuances, whether they're the unique operating elements of an ETF, you know, putting a basket together what's an INAB, how does it create, redeem, order flow work, all those elements. But then also within the firm, there's avenues like capital markets, You know, having a person or a team build those relationships with the exchange, with the authorized participants, with the market makers, help them navigate those external entities and the internal teams running the funds and the operations group supporting the funds. So there's some nuances and elements here that we try to broach with clients and help educate them on and get them comfortable so that they've kind of checked their ETF launch list appropriately before listing funds for the first time.
0: Have you ever come across a scenario where you've gone through this process with a client existing or new, and you decided that they're not ETF ready and it's not right for them.
2: It's not usually a call we would make, but we have had instances where clients, you know, the launch plans change, they become more fluid. It is not uncommon for us to see, you know, maybe launches get pushed out maybe a couple weeks, a couple months, but usually we're engaging. I mean, we have case studies where we've worked with firms for five, six seven years and helped kind of the, these one phases and worked with key stakeholders in the firm they kind of get their, you know help them make an educated decision when it comes to building and getting kind of a yes or no on a business case so we try to position ourselves a little bit further ahead of the game to, a, to kind of specifically avoid you know we've spent a couple months now onboarding and, and getting ready to list and then you know having to walk away from it I, I would say that hasn't happened but it is not uncommon for launches to maybe get pushed a, a couple weeks or a couple months depending on the needs of the client or, you know, currently what's going on in the market. Maybe it's just not the right time to bring a fund out.
0: So if you had to look at the next three to six months out, what would you say would be the biggest obstacle, or maybe there's two, um, that a firm would probably have to overcome or get their head around in order to be ETF ready the BBH way?
2: (laughs) A couple points there, you know, if we're thinking of obstacles, I mean, these aren't necessarily ETF specifics, but certainly as we, you know, engage with our clients, engage with the marketplace, understanding that there is sort of an element of uncertainty going on right now. Things are, you know, I think folks are settling into the work environment we're in. Markets have, you know, maybe calmed here a little bit over recent weeks. But we're still expecting this new normal to exist for the foreseeable future. And what does that mean to funding? What does that mean to product development efforts? Um, You know, right now, we're not seeing many delays on our side in terms of clients executing on launches that were sort of uh, in flight before the pandemic kind of fully hit. But the longer we're in this environment, I think that would naturally be a potential hurdle for firms, you know, or do they need to put their funding elsewhere? Do they need to backstop their BCP efforts and put more funding into systems versus product development? I think one of those hurdles will just Be give and take on those resources for these firms, and then secondly, I think it's just a broader market view. With you know, over the next three to six months in the near term, are the market conditions right for a particular fund launch? You know, what do these strategies look like for the clients? Are they kind of flying into the teeth of a market that may not be the best environment for that particular asset class? Or conversely, what we've actually seen is that this volatility may be an opportune time to launch, you know, low volatility type products, to launch offered ETFs, which are gaining a lot of traction here in the States, where they can kind of, you know, limit the downside impact of a of that market sell off or, or price, you know, so valuation drop. So elements like that may be more favorable. So uh, conversely, from your question on hurdles, it may be, an, there may be an opportunity, you know, in this current market environment for certain asset classes as well.
0: Danny, any questions from your side? Well, no, there is one more
1: thing I want to ask before we wrap up. And Shannon, you know, it's my favorite question, my favorite topic at the moment. It's when just is the saying. Pubs opening? Well, that's number two. <laughs> I saw a picture of a, a letter to the editor in one of the daily papers, and it was very short. It said, dear sirs, please, God, will they reopen the pub so we don't all turn into alcoholics? <laughs> but don't waste a crisis. So it's something that I heard a few weeks ago. And actually, as we're dealing with firms, it's increasingly firms have deployed BCP and they're kind of getting used to today's world. It's coming up again and again. I'm starting to work with firms on on looking at how they are doing things differently today and what they can learn and, and what are the good things that they want to embed into how they work going into the future, regardless of how we get out the other side of this. And I just wondered, Ryan, from your perspective, away from ETS necessarily, but But just in terms of don't waste a crisis, is that something that started to appear on in your professional world as being on the agenda that things have settled a little bit and now we're looking to see how we learn
2: and do things better? What are they going to be? (laughs) Short answer is yes. You know, I think just even internally, you know, where I sit within the firm, I'm part of what we kind of call a relationship, you know, management part of the organization. So, you know, the collectively a team facing off with of clients on a regular basis and supporting our clients on bringing new clients to the firm. And just how we interact is sort of fundamentally changing. There's, a, I think, a lot more frequent engagement and sharing of insights from what this team is collectively hearing. And we have folks like myself focused on ETFs globally. We have teams focused on alternatives, on kind of traditional mutual fund and usage product lines. And the, the kind of cross-pollination, I'd say, is actually accelerated in this environment because I think we're all more attuned to trying to, to stay in touch and stay communicative with what's going on and what we're hearing. So I think that's probably a, a great benefit for us because I think it makes us more nimble as an organization. And then I think that's been, you know, certainly kind of a, a positive feature here, just the, the way we're communicating and the frequency of these communications. Personally, and I've had this conversation internally as well, we may be quickly approaching the, the ceiling on video conferencing. <laughs> I think there is certainly an argument to be made that not every meeting needs a video. Conference calls can be just as powerful. But you know that would be one element where we're keen to understand and, and look at the types of meetings we're having where video should be. Certainly client engagement, we prefer that face-to-face uh, to the extent clients uh, want to do it as well. But internally, you know, let, let's maybe walk that back a little bit. It, give folks a little bit more flexibility on there. You know, those those are two that jump out to mind here with recent conversations with our teams over the last couple of weeks.
1: Great, it's interesting because the kind of instinct would have been that communications would suffer as a result of yeah. being further apart. And actually, and I've heard this before, yeah, that actually firms or teams are finding they're working more closely together through this. And I guess maybe it is just being more conscious about the need to do it and it being uh, higher up your, your list of priorities.
0: Anything from you, Shannon? Well, I was just thinking to play off that last sentence, you know, we've removed the physical closeness and we are replacing it now with the technological closeness. So, yeah, I can see it's only been a couple weeks and we're already hitting the ceiling on video. (laughs) I do get that. I do get that. Um, But I think we're also becoming more tolerant of people being able to work from a natural environment where Mm -hmm. kids might be running around in the background or the kitchen door opens. Those things are just being more accepted, which God love them. Remember that news clip a couple years ago? (laughs) One of my favorites. (laughs) Everybody is him. We are all him. No, and that's it. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed hearing the perspectives that you guys have going on over there, Ryan. I enjoyed your technical questions, Danny, but some of them did kind of gloss over a bit.
1: Well, you better get learning, Sean, because there's going to be a test next week.
0: I'm in the academy. I'm in the academy.
1: (laughs) Cool. Well, let's wrap it up there. Thanks very much, of course, to Ryan. I really appreciate you taking the time out to give us your insights and and particularly your view of the world from the other side of the Atlantic. Very, very valuable. Shout out to your colleague, Adrian Whelan, who put us in touch and as I said to Adrian, when I was begging him for an introduction to you, Ryan, <laughs> I was buttering him up saying he's really kicking ass with the amount of content that he's producing at the moment. And he's got great the, he's, content. Yeah, he's great doing content. great. Yeah. Yeah. He's Where's really got time? this whole
2: thing cornered. Yeah. He, he is a prolific writer on our end. and one of the, uh, one of the best. Incredible. So I'm yeah. very grateful to him for giving us the opportunity to connect here.
1: Okay. Well, that's enough nice things about Adrian. We never <laughs> <laughs> We'll never get over it, Shannon. Thanks as always for co-hosting. Great to have you.
0: Thank you, Danny. Good to be here.
1: We will be back next week with another podcast. I don't know if we can say at this stage, Shannon, who our co-hosts, our guest next week is going to be.
0: Well, we've got three lined up. I don't know who's doing which date. So if you want to chance it, go ahead. I'm in.
1: Mm, I got well, I don't hat. even know if I've asked some of them. I've just <laughs> nominated them. <laughs> but I think next week it's going to be Jen Cahill from Savvy Recruitment to give us a perspective of how all of the current industry and situation is playing out where people either looking to recruit or looking to move and what she's seeing and what her, her insights and are. Sear,
0: I want to get a handle on what's going on with Sear. Is it staying the course? Is it shifting goalposts? I think we can be asking her some of those questions in that as well.
1: Right. And I guess if any of our listeners have any questions you'd like to put in for that one, send them through either right through us at quest or through a comment in the blog post on this. Thanks again, guys. We're going to wrap it up there. Take care of yourselves. Stay safe. And we'll catch you again on the next episode of the Quest podcast.
0: You've been listening to the Aquas podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquest.ie. For more resources on regs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler R U R Q.